This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. that lasted nearly 14 months. What started as an attempt to simply choose new living room furniture burgeoned into an entire home redesign with one new project begetting another and then another. My best friend, Susan Benjamin, an Emmy-nominated set decorator, handled the redesign. I had never redecorated a home before, and throughout most of the experience, I lived amidst dust and debris and demolition. For two weeks in the deepest February, I even had to trek through the snow and frigid New York City temperatures in my robe and sneakers to use my generous neighbor's shower while mine was being replaced. It was a grueling journey, and during the experience, I became so obsessed with faucets, floor tiles, door hinges, and sofa fabric that I began to fantasize about toilets and bathtubs rather than my usual daydreams of designer shoes and expensive handbags. This was my first experience working with an interior decorator. Albeit a different discipline, this designer also exhibited many of the same traits as graphic designers. She was headstrong, opinionated, finicky, elitist, and a complete perfectionist. She was also frequently right, sometimes impatient, with me mostly, and she, often ba- she was often baffled by my lack of interior design knowledge. And until she pointed it out for me, I couldn't understand why it was not really necessary for me to ask my dog walker for her opinion of the color of the grout for the kitchen backsplash. This experience has made me far more aware of my surroundings and beauty and comfort than I have ever been before. She was not satisfied with anything less than perfect, and nothing ever seemed to be perfect. This impressed me, it confounded me, and it surprised me throughout our arduous expedition together. I was far more forgiving of the contractor's failings than she was, and I couldn't understand, and still don't really, why she made the contractor who installed the glass wall in my entryway take the damn thing down because she chose a half-inch stainless steel border instead of a three-quarter-inch one, and he made a mistake. But I guess this is her art, her creation, and she wanted it to be flawless. I've experienced this before over and over in the business of graphic design. Many of the designers I work with and admire are on the same quest. The perfect layout, the perfect logo, the most perfect label design. But who makes that call? Who determines perfection? I had a client call me yesterday to tell me that the design work I recently presented was considered good, but not great by her brand team. I couldn't help but wonder what made them feel qualified to say that. Is it because they know the brand better? Because they think they know design better? Or is it because they're paying the bills? In this day and age of uber-fast decision-making and split-second intuitive leaps, it seems as though knowledge, education, and talent 
can't always ensure that our clients are making good, appropriate decisions or that our final creations will be exactly as we want them. I can't help but wonder if it is possible that nothing really is ever good enough and if we should always strive for something better. Two weeks after my 14-month renovation was finally complete, my dog Duff urinated on my brand-new custom-made sofa and a squirrel fell five floors down through my chimney and was chased, covered in soot and blood, by my two cats all through my perfect living room. I was inconsolable. When I told Sue, she comforted me, and then she laughed. I was stunned at her humorous mood and questioned why she wasn't more upset at the very obvious mess that was now prevalent in my apartment. She looked at me in bewilderment and told me, Though she wanted everything in the renovation to go perfectly, she didn't expect that everything would be perfect. And though the apartment was now very messy, it was certainly not ruined. In fact, now it was officially mine. And suddenly I knew what she meant. In a perfect world, the imperfections in our homes are really the only evidence we have of truly inhabiting where we live. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guests today are Steve Sikora, Charlie Laser, and Tom Wright. Before we get started with our interview, please let me tell you a little bit more about them. Steve Sikora is co-founder and creative director of the multidisciplinary firm Design Guys. Sikora, along with partner Lynette Erickson Sikora, directs identity and branding, print, packaging, advertising, retail strategies, signage programs, websites, broadcast, merchandising fixtures, and environments. Steve studied painting and sculpture as a fine arts major at the University of Wisconsin, and in the late 1970s began applying his visual arts training in the form of graphic design while involved with experimental theater in Minneapolis. And don't think we're not going to ask him about that. Design Guy's work has regularly appeared uh, in magazines, he's won many, many awards and has been featured in print, How, Critique, Graphis, and Adobe. Charlie Laser, founder of Laser Office and co-founder of the award-winning Blue Dot, is currently one of the hottest architects in the country. His ingenious flat pack house has been credited with jump-starting a renewed interest in prefab homes, and it was recently chosen by the National Design Museum for its design triennial. The first flat pack house is under construction, and 16 more homes are scheduled. And last but certainly not least, one of my favorite people, Tom Wright, is the Director of Advertising and Design for Nina Paper. For the past 20 years, he has directed the company's visual branding strategy, and he's also worked extensively in the area of environmental design. He's a key figure in providing brand consulting and positioning for Nina's market-leading papers and products, and he has spoken to thousands of designers across North America on the role of premium paper in communications, and he's most likely been involved in more paper mill promotions than probably any individual in North America, if not the world. Welcome, gentlemen. Hello. Thank you. Hi. Thank you for being here. I think that Charlie is calling in from Florence, and I know that we're working on getting him on the telephone. 
Um, in the meantime, I want to start talking with Tom and Steve. So, Tom, I'm going to start with you. Um, can you tell us about this recent project that you've done with Charlie and Steve and what it's about, how you decided to do it, and why you chose Steve and Charlie, aside from the fact that we know that they're both wonderful. I want more juicy details. They're, they're both wonderful, and they're both in Minneapolis, which makes for a great <laughs> So it's really geographic. <laughs> it's a totally geographic decision. Forget the talent. Well, and, and the wonderful part about it was that we've been, doing a part of a series uh, looking at papers and, and how they get applied across the marketplaces. And uh, this particular series that the design guys uh, established for us called Nina Bound uh, allows us to look at disciplines. And we did three disciplines on direct mail to nonprofits to um, corporate entities and so forth. And, and we moved on and, and came into another series on architecture of which um, we did a piece um, with Michael Glass and, and, then, and then now on to this Charlie Laser piece uh, with the, the Dual House. And um, they just offer designers a unique insight into using paper as they go forward and, and start to do their own projects for construction firms, for engineering firms, architectural firms, resort development, uh, spa applications, etc. It's a perfect fit for, for a fine paper type project. But aside from the paper, tell me about the, the concept. What, what was the motivation behind doing this type of project to begin with? Aside from showcasing the marvelous paper. Well, I what, think the, behind the whole thing, it, it, it's so rich in design. There's such a crossover today in what designers do. If you listen to what Steve has down in, in his bio for the type of work that they are involved with, designers have really moved out of being singularly focused, and they really move into so many different arenas today, whether it's development of their own uh, furniture applications or development of, of um, you know, retail environmental uh, shelving space or development into the packaging arena and so forth. They've really broadened their, their, their viewpoint. And so as you show something like this particular piece that Charlie has uh, worked so hard to develop, kind of a reintroduction of the Eames House of, of past, which is another connection to what Nina has done with the Eames uh, paper line that, that exists today. This house kind of is the antithesis of what the Eames were doing, simplifying, showing uh, how art and design could mix so well. It, it just made for a perfect platform to be able to go out to designers and, and hit their hot button of what is current. Now, I, I, correct me if I, if I heard you wrong. Did you say that it was the antithesis to something that the Eames were doing? Well, if, if you go to the Eames house uh, in Pacific Palisades and so forth, now their house was built as a case study house, mm -hmm. and it was uh, actually the case study was for the Eames to create a home that two designers lived in, and it was all out of pretty much found materials rather than uh, and kind of post-war materials from from back in the uh, 40s, and they, they put together this home that is just beautiful and classic and modern and very, very simplified in style. When you look at the Dwell House, it's a little bit different, obviously. But yeah, the Dwell House, you, what you mean by the Dwell House is the flat pack, pack yes. uh, home. Uh, it's a little bit different, but it carries many of the same similarities, the difference being that it's approachable by many because of its module components made up of unique um, square units that you tie together the way you wish to have them. But it has very much a feel and, and probably very much of a foundation uh, from the original Eames home. 
Now, um, for our listeners that might not be aware, and this is a question that I would have asked Charlie, but Tom, if you can help me out here, can you explain to our listeners exactly what a prefab or a prefabricated house actually is? A prefabricated house is one that's made up of of specific components, and you put put this together much like you would put together uh, an erector set, uh, if you would, Um, but you have items which you can make selections from three or four different glass styles to go into the home. Uh, they're already predetermined in size and in scale and so forth, but you may have frosted or you may have a tinted green type of glass or clear glass application. Same thing goes when you go to selecting the woods. You'd have three or four different wood selections, uh, which you could um, choose from, from birches or maples or other type of applications. Concrete, you'd have concrete that could be plain, or you could have concrete that may have a green cast to it uh, that's been mixed with some type of a, a mortar type of uh, a treatment to give it some coloration and so forth. All these elements from tiles to wall surfaces to glass and so forth are all predetermined, and you kind of pick and choose out of a listing of what you would like, and you place all these components together into into your home, uh, and which is made out of basically square units that you can stack together in a very lineal um, progression, or you could stack on top of each other, or you could make into L shapes or into uh, some type of other shape that have little coves to them, etc. But it's all pre-assembled um, materials that come to the site, and literally, for example, uh, once the foundation is poured and uh, basic walls are up, the roofing will go on in one day because all the panels come and are set into place in incredible. one day. That's incredible. Um, I know Dwell Magazine has been doing quite a lot of coverage on the prefab houses, homes, and are, I think, literally responsible for bringing this big trend back into fashion. Um, just one last question about the prefab houses, and then we're going to have to go to break. Um, are they fundamentally cheaper than a house that isn't prefabricated, or is it really something that is beneficial or advantageous because of the um, convenience of it? I think the goal is to drive the cost down and make them less expensive than the existing. But like anything, there's a startup period of time, and I think the true cost per square foot is probably pretty comparable, depending upon which part of the country you live in, but maybe around the 175 to $200 a square foot range currently. But as you said in your monologue, there's currently one house that uh, uh, Charlie has built, and they have other houses on the drawing board and in the process of construction, and I think as they move through that process, they'll get some of the um, necessary um, cost-cutting features built into it, and and it will help to drive the cost down. Wonderful. Well, I am happy to say that we do have Charlie on the line. Uh, We will be back with him after our break. Uh, In the meantime, I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Melman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Melman, and my guests today are Steve Socorro, who is indeed with us, who I will be asking lots of questions when we come back, Charlie Laser, who is in from Italy now, and Tom Wright. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Listen wherever you are. 24-hour business and financial news. Solid, focused, and informed. The leader in business talk. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. And now, Voices of Design, a documentary series brought to you by Adobe Systems. 
the Voices of Design series brings together different voices from the design community to share and exchange ideas on various topics. Today's show features a three-part discussion focused on the topic of sustainability. This is part one. Enjoy. What is sustainability, and what does it mean to the design community? Let's listen to what the designers at the Compost Modern 2006 conference have to say on this topic in Adobe's Voices of Design series. Here is Phil Hamlet, Chairman, AIGA Environmental Committee. The definition of sustainability that I like to use is quite simple. It's basically leave the place in better shape than you found it. Scott Summit. Summit ID. Sustainability is particularly elusive, especially in industrial design, and that's one of the main reasons I'm here is to try to get a handle on what it means and just how it applies to what I do every day and what I can impart to my clients. Mark Willard, IDO. The pressure is on, and whoever solves it in a more sustainable and desirable way is ahead of the game and, and is what whether people sort of consciously or subconsciously know it, it's, it's definitely what we need. You have been listening to the Voices of Design series brought to you by Adobe Systems. To grow a company, revenues need to grow. To grow revenues, the organization needs to grow. But what does it take to get and keep quality personnel needed to grow business? Tune into Real People Really Leading with Trish Lambert. Get the inside scoop on how to leverage your best assets to sustained business growth. Trish and her expert guests, from business owners to CEOs to solopreneurs, share the knowledge, experience, and business savvy they have used to lead their teams to continual and persistent business victory. Real People Really Leading broadcast every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific. 5 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Real people really leading because knowing is growing. Are you looking for a unique perspective on today's market from an experienced economist? Well, look no further. Listen to The Economic Contrarian with host Mike Norman every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time on Business America Radio. Mike and his guests will discuss new trends in the marketplace as well as emerging companies and opportunities. So if you want in-depth analysis from a contrarian point of view, don't miss The Economic Contrarian Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time right here on BusinessAmericaRadio.com. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 319 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, live from the Empire State Building in New York City. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guests today are Steve Sikora, Charlie Laser, and Tom Wright. If you'd like to join our conversation, if you have a question for any of these lovely gentlemen, our phone lines are now open, and you can call one 866 472 And during the break, Charlie joined us from Florence, Italy. Buongiorno, Charlie. It's nice to have you with us. I was just in Italy a couple of weeks ago. We did a broadcast live from Tuscany, which was rather wonderful. Um, so I'm ever so slightly jealous that you're there. Um, before you joined us, we were talking about your flat pack houses. And um, I, I really want to talk a little bit about how you moved into this type of work. You really have two careers. One is a partner at Blue Dot where you make wonderful furniture and now the other as an architect. Do you ever feel slightly schizophrenic? Do you feel like the two practices work well together? Is it difficult to manage your time? How do, how do you manage this? 
Well, um, actually, the easiest way to manage it is to um, is to step away from one to focus on the other, um, which is really what I've done. Um, and uh, the Flatpak uh, prefab project started um, about three years ago, um, and I made a conscious decision that I really wanted to focus my efforts on architecture, which is where my my design, um, my interest, and my training and my early career began. Now, I, I read that the Flatpak House is part of uh, your mission to design what you call a contemporary vernacular. Um, can you elaborate on that a little bit for us? Yeah, sure. Um, if um, it, You know, one thing that um, designers and, and I think um, particularly architects are interested in um, have been interested in really, I think, since modernity or, or modernism as a uh, approach to architecture um, started to come into question, um, is, is the idea of looking at, at a vernacular. And, and the value of a vernacular is it's something, that's, um, it's something that's been proven over time um, because the, the producers of it um, are doing the same thing, in a sense, over and over and over again. So, for example, when you travel to Greece and you stay on an island, you are staying in a Greek vernacular, the... <laughs> the, um, the uh, hillside towns that plunge down to the sea. And there's a certain way of, uh, there's a, uh, an assumed set of technologies, materials, ways of doing things, whether it's the roof or the door or uh, the floor. Mm-hmm. And um, so that kind of process um, over many, you know, here we're talking about many, many years, uh, a system of, of production is, is honed and um, all of the bugs are worked out. And um, I was interested in how you might be able to take that kind of intention and, uh, in a sense, kind of latch it on to um, modern methods. Um, our modern methods are industrial production. We fabricate things with computer-controlled machines, and we use information technology to organize the process of our industrial production. Um, and we have um, delivery systems, means of, in a sense, delivering a product, um, whether it's a car coming from Detroit that, as we all know, is actually coming from all over the world in component parts um, to, let's say, something like um, uh, clothing, for example, again, which comes from all over the world. The idea is to take those kinds of methodologies that are very much what we swim in um, in our modern American world and find a way that we could make architecture um, not only better but more accessible mm-hmm. through uh, adopting those means. I think you actually described something that could be considered appropriate for graphic design as well. And I think that there are very few design firms that actually have quite the distinct vernacular that design guys do. So, Steve, um, thank you for joining us as well. Um, talk a little bit about, if you can, what you feel is uniquely your style at Design Guys? Well, that's an interesting question. I, I don't really see Design Guys as having a style. I think we have a style of working or a method of working. Mm, um, okay. Aesthetically, I, don't, I, don't, I hope that we're not entirely fixed um, in one direction. And well, I think your work has a certain wit to it. There's a certain wit when I see something and I'll think, hmm, I wonder if Design Guys did that. And I'm not always right, but, yeah. but I do feel like there's a certain level of, of intelligent humor to a lot of the work that you do. 
Yeah, and, and not always. But here's, I, th- I think what's really important to us in, in terms of our method of working, and because I've done this for a fairly long time, you know, 20, 25 years, um, I feel like at this point in my life, and I say my life rather than career because I don't think we're living careers, I think we're living lives, um, I think that it's, it's really important that we uh, always succeed for our clients. And so we bring uh, as much sort of added value. We really invest ourselves into projects, number one. Number two, um, we do want things to be uh, aesthetically successful or artistically successful on some level because that's what that's what gets us all interested and keeps us sort of attentive. And then mm-hmm. the third thing is uh, this idea of sort of serving the, the greater good. And like this project is a good example. Um, when, Tell us how. When, when Nina asked us to um, develop a new system of promotions for them and Nina Bound arose, the idea was that we would do these sort of journal-sized pieces that could go into a, a, a larger uh, three-ring binder. And, and instead of paper promotions, and I, you know, uh, forgive me, Tom, for saying this, but a lot of paper promotions end up being uh, tossed in the trash. Um, and, and often it's because there's a lack of substance. We wanted to bring substance to these things. And so um, the, this particular series of Nina Bound um, really related to uh, a, a, another interest of mine, which is the greater world of design. And sometimes I feel... The graphic designers don't really look at other forms of design. They don't care about architecture or know enough about it. They don't really think that much about product design. And, and everything we do is, is hopefully a little more holistic. And so um, I became aware of Charlie's house a few years ago when he was building the, the very first prototype. And it blew me away when I saw it because it was very evident what, what he was trying to do. And um, this idea of, of uh, bringing more accessible design to a greater number of people is obviously been a challenge in architecture forever and ever, not so much in graphic design. But um, I thought it was really interesting, and luckily we made the connections before sort of the, uh, the press discovered Charlie. And so this stuff all coincided with, you know, the um, Law Magazine arrangements, et cetera, et cetera. But I love the fact that, you know, we can be, we can be topical and we can partner with, with other people. And, uh, and so, we, you know, we, by connecting Charlie and, and Nina, it really... It, it aided Charlie in his uh, sort of more or less startup business with the Flatback. Um, it brought much more interesting content to a paper promotion than we mm-hmm. ever could have dreamed up. And um, aesthetically, it was, you know, absolutely rich in terms of where, where we could go with it. So. Yeah, I highly recommend our listeners to try to get samples of these books because they're really, really beautiful. Um, let's talk I, about I one would th- say uh, just uh, that for me it was a, a gift that fell from heaven. <laughs> in what way? How so? How so? When Steve proposed it. And, um, you know, I was deep in the throes of getting my house finished, and uh, and uh, the wallet was getting thinner and thinner and thinner. And, <laughs> and then how do you get the message out? And I thought, oh, my God, what am I going to do here? And um, this remarkable gift uh, came my way from Steve, which, um, you know, was, I think, uh, precisely what Steve said is he, he made something um, of value out of yeah, yeah. promotional I mean, product. If, if, if anybody does have it, it, there's a wonderful little booklet inside the residential architecture book, which essentially gives you a complete explanation of what a, a, a prefab house is, what the prefab flat pack house is, and then it also lets you configure your own flat pack house, which was my favorite part, and I need more little sticky things to use to, make, to finish making my dream house. Um, we have to take a break, but I want to come back and talk a little bit about the relationship between designer and architect 
architect because it is has been somewhat mythologized as a relationship that isn't always a positive one. But let's talk about that when we get back. I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guests today are Steve Sikora, Charlie Laser, and Tom Wright. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages. We also have some callers on the line, so please don't go away. Fresh, dynamic, and totally prepared for continuing business education. Business Talk Radio. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. And now, part two of Adobe's Voices of Design series, a documentary that brings together different voices from the design community to share and exchange. Today's topic is sustainability. Enjoy. The challenge of sustainable design. Let's listen to what the designers at the Compost Modern 2006 conference have to say on this topic in Adobe's Voices of Design series. Here is Sonora Bean, Digital Hive Ecological Design. Sustainability isn't just a great idea, but it's a design challenge. And so as designers, how can we use our skills and our thinking and our strategy to promote social change? Ron Radziner, Marmel Radziner Architects. I think that architecture, as a profession, that we've become too removed from the actual act of making, and we've become kind of just aesthetic consultants. And I think that our office is this attempt to bring that all back together, which is really how buildings used to be designed and built, and take responsibility for what we design. You have been listening to the Voices of Design series brought to you by Adobe Systems. Dad, can I ask you something? Sure. There's this girl I kind of like. Say no more. You just have to impress her. Okay, but how? Just, I don't know, pick up a lot of heavy things around her. Like what? You know, desks, chairs, people. Grunt if you have to. Grunt? Yeah, be like, oh! Uh, There you go. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. When you adopt a child from foster care, just being there makes all the difference. To learn more, call 1-888-200-4005. A public service announcement brought to you by Adopt U.S. Kids, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and the Ad Council. You hear business show after business show all geared towards improving a company's bottom line. But what about your bottom line? How come no one ever talks about that? Finally, a show dedicated to the worker, The Crow Show with Paul McLaughlin, The Work Wonk. Heard every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, The Crow Show is aimed specifically at the worker and their environment. From work skills and technology to dealing with bosses and coworkers, The Crow Show will give you insight on how to survive and prosper in today's workplace. The Crow Show with Paul McLaughlin, The Work Wonk. Heard every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line of business talk, businessamericaradio.com. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 866-472-5790. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Live from the Empire State Building, you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the only talk radio show on the Internet focusing on issues relating to graphic design and culture. I am Debbie Millman, your host, and my guests today are Steve Sikora, Charlie Laser, and Tom Wright. If you'd like to join our conversation, if you have a question for any of these men, our phone lines are open, 1-866-472-5790. And we do have a caller on the line. Gregory, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Hello. How are you today? Good, thanks. Uh, Hi, guys. Charlie, I'm glad you made it because 
an architect is, is just who I want to talk to. Um, <laughs> my parents built our house in 1967, and uh, it was a pre-cut house. My mother was always very careful to tell people it was a pre-cut house and not a pre-fab house. I'm not sure why, but she was always very specific. I don't even um, know what the difference is. You'll have to let us know. <laughs> and um, all I, I got my own bathroom, and all I wanted was a toothbrush holder. And as the um, house was being completed, we went to see it, and I went to my bathroom, and I looked, and I said to the guy, where's the toothbrush holder? And he said, there's no room. And I looked to the right, and there was this blank wall, and I said, what about here? And he put a toothbrush holder there. Um, which brings me to the question of, do you think architects get so preoccupied with design, what something's going to look like, um, that they really overlook practical function, like, you know, putting an outlet on every wall and not just one wall, or the lack of space, or the waste of space, like in the in the disease of cathedral ceiling entrances in McMansions. All right. Well, Good question, Gregory. Thank you. I think, yeah, no, no surprise there. Um, you know, I think it depends on on the architect. Um, some uh, clearly have no interest or patience in the child's toothbrush holder location or um, some of the other issues you brought up. Uh, some um, do practice, though, with an intention of making eminently practical domestic space or, 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 or space for use. And, um, you know, it's, it's interesting um, the, uh, for myself, just traveling from architecture to furniture design back to architecture. Um, one of the great, uh, one of the things I really enjoyed about furniture design was you could get your arms around the whole thing, every little bit and piece, um, and uh, in a sense um, bring it all under your, your kind of control, I guess. Um, you're able to know it all. Um, Buildings, houses are big things, and they have so many moments, so many specifications, so many data points. It's really quite overwhelming to take it all on. Um, and, and interestingly enough, I mean, it, it is actually one of the rationales for um, the prefabricated house system called flat pack, which is that um, we're not going to design it um, once and then take on another commission and design that and take on another commission. This is a, a long-term project. Um, I'll be honest, we're not quite at the toothbrush holder, um, but through the uh, constant uh, sifting through and evaluation of the system through gaining information from the inhabitants, uh, from the users, continually to go back in and address um, those issues so that uh, the toothbrush holder is actually an option that shows up in your flat pack catalog. And when you decide the contents of your flat pack bathroom, um, there's a box to check. And it's a nice, cool little toothbrush holder um, that a little kid gets into because it's cool looking and they want to use it because it's, it's nice and it works. Um, and so in that method then, um, take on this big and unwieldy and almost um, impossible to know the whole thing task called designing a building, designing a house, um, and uh, kind of solve the whole the whole problem. Well, thank you for calling, Gregory. Really appreciate you calling Hi. Design Matters. Um, of course, the other of course the other way to address that is have an enormous uh, design fee. 
<laughs> That's always an easy answer for anything. <laughs> Um, before the break, we were talking a little bit about, or I started to ask you about the relationship between designers and architects, and I think that there's, um, whether rightly or wrongly, a, a, a mythology about uh, architects thinking that designers are too finicky and, and sensitive, and designers thinking that architects look down on them, and now that we have an architect and a designer working together and both on the air at the same time, you want to um, share some of the history of your working relationship and whether any of those mythologies came to bear in your in your work together? <laughs> you, you can go first. Okay. I, you know, I, I don't really see it that way, and, and maybe I know enough architects that I can see that there's there's a huge range in terms of how they perceive the world and how they work and how they interface with other people. But more and more, I'm, I'm encountering um, people in, in design and architecture who sort of are redefining their disciplines. They, mm -hmm. They're expanding the scope. And uh, there's one potential client, I guess I can't call them a client yet, who, who are really working in this space sort of between public art and conventional architecture. And, and they're really grasping with how to define themselves so that they can go out and market themselves. But um, with, I, I felt like, I, and, you know, I think, Again, Charlie is is in a little different place. I mean, his uh, the furniture line Blue Dot that uh, that he helped found is is very um, pop culture, and, and um, young designers are very aware of it, and I think they are very aware of their audience. So I think he's coming at it from a from a place that's completely different than the kind of you know company that's doing suburban tract homes or McMansions or something. So that's, I mean, that's my take. And, and so the uh, the designer who actually did this piece, Kelly Munson, in my office, who did a, a fantastic job, used um, an early prototype that Charlie created in his office, which I have to congratulate him on because it, it got my attention. And it was, um, you know, even though it was produced on sort of the office equipment, uh, was doing the job. And we took it and uh, and really uh, took a couple of steps back and said, so if, if you really were going to use this as sort of a step-by-step um, how to buy a house and how to define your own house and how to be a participant in the design process, how would you approach it? But I, I really feel like the way Charlie is approaching Flatpak is um, is entirely friendly to that process and it's you know entirely in sync with, with how we would have worked in any case. And did you ever have any disagreements? Not yet. Um, no, no, I think we had discussions. Yeah, um, I, I think I mean, we were interested in, yeah, I mean, we... You know, I, I don't know if this is a difference, but I mean, I was not trained as an undergraduate as an architect. I went to a liberal arts school and actually did not take any architecture courses. So, we, you, so you're not trained at all as an architect? You just learned it on your own? No, no. In grad, <laughs> graduate school, I went, I went, I studied architecture. But <laughs> okay. I, I guess maybe it's just that I was taught in really methods of argument or methods of you know constructing an argument more than anything, and and you know for. Go, I guess perhaps to a liberal arts um, training, you you're taught to um, to seek answers through discourse, and that um, the and, and, and logic plays a lot in how the flow of the conversation goes. And nobody holds um, the answer arbitrarily just because um, they say they hold the answer, uh, which actually I think is unfortunately um, too much of the of architecture in the last hundred years or so. Um, fabulous geniuses like uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, but, you know, kind of attitude that's a little bit distressing, um, particularly uh, when it's taken on by someone who doesn't have his genius. Mm -hmm. 
I think it's an attitude that's taught, um, unfortunately, more than anything in in schools of architecture or in the culture of architecture, which um, for me, um, the most interesting thing for me was to um, step out of that culture, that training when we founded Blue Dot and live in this other space called product design or furniture mm-hmm. design. And, and it really was, a, um, you know, you really get to understand in a sense, how you've been sold a culture or trained in a culture um, that if you didn't step outside of it, you might not be able to recognize that. Yes, I, so, I, I, I you know, I think that, um, yeah. Absolutely true. Yeah, so, um, so uh, you know, of course we can, <laughs> we might seize the imperative at certain times of playing that role because we want to, you know, hold sway. Uh, convince somebody. Uh, oftentimes, it's actually really hard, actually, in architecture to communicate to a client why this is good, why we should do it this way. Um, more and more, we have more tools of representation, mm-hmm. 3D modeling, um, in particular, um, that will allow us to rep- allow us to represent things as we we're unable to before. Um, so, when you're saying that it's hard to um, express it to clients, is it more because it's so difficult to render things three-dimensionally. Sometimes, yeah, yeah. But I think it's sometimes just hard to be able to articulate why one design is better than another. I think it's such an incredibly subjective discipline. Almost any aspect of design is is very subjective. It it is, but, you know, um, I'm going to get in a lot of trouble for saying this, but it's been my experience that in architecture school, on juries, or in reviewing things in the office, uh, critiquing things, as it's called, um, that opinions actually cluster. Um, I mean, you get issues maybe that um, separation or, or disagreement based more on philosophy or attitude or I disagree with your intention. Um, but when we're talking about the organization of space and good plans and, and plans that are, have problems or uh, space making that's, you know, delightful and wonderful, I find more often than not um, a group of architects uh, will agree to that, um, which again lends more support to my argument that actually we can use a lot of a lot of logic um, and that kind of discourse to come to an understanding of what's the right thing to do or the better thing to do. I'm really um, fascinated by what you said about opinions clustering. Um, what do you mean by that? Well, I think you know, for example, we in the office will, um, uh, you know, we have, for example, a two people intimately involved with the project, the ones who are designing it and driving it, and then we bring in um, people who are not involved in the project and have them look at it. And more mm-hmm. often than not, um, um, our hunch that, you know, while we don't try to lead them, um, what we feel is the right way to go is what they'll often end up um, speaking to. Um, but I particularly find this on, on design juries. I mean, maybe people have just gotten more timid <laughs> But um, and don't like to disagree as much. But I I uh, find very commonly that uh, we can determine that something is is better and something something is not as good or something is bad. Problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, maybe if I can circle back to this question of designers, graphic designers, product designers, industrial designers, and architects. Um, um, you know, I, I think um, one thing that is definitely happening that Steve alluded to is I think that the design fields are becoming more level. Mm-hmm. Um, architects okay. are seeking out uh, graphic designers. Um, there is, for example, the project that Rem Coolhouse did at IIT, um, which is a campus uh, student center 
and collaborated with 2x4, um, who not only just, I mean, 2x4 was not asked, I understand it, just to do the wayfinding system or something that you might, you know, the font for the building, but really collaborate with the architect on this question of image and representation and and modernism, you know, the, the land of Mies down there, mm-hmm. Bandero, um, where there's nothing graphic involved, um, and uh, except perhaps for the uh, image of uh, a Miesian frame. But um, there's more and more of that kind of collaboration going on, which um, we're very interested in, in being involved in, um, where, um, you know, this thing like the toothbrush holder <laughs> yes. uh, that the other gentleman spoke of, is really a product. Uh, typically, maybe does not fall into the purview of what an architect gets involved in. But to complete the whole design problem at hand, uh, you often have to get into that. And uh, you know, we love to do built-ins. We love, obviously, to do furniture. Um, and it requires, in a sense, reaching out and working collaboratively with others in those disciplines to do it successfully. Well, thank you for that answer, Charlie. It's really, it's really great to hear how holistic you're approaching these varied disciplines in our little world and big world of design. Um, we have to take a break, unfortunately, our last break. We also have a caller holding. Um, so I'd like everybody to know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guests today are Steve Sikora, Charlie Laser, and Tom Wright. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please don't go away. Fresh, dynamic, and totally prepared for continuing business education. Business Talk Radio. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. And now, part two of Adobe's Voices of Design series, a documentary that brings together different voices from the design community to share and exchange. Today's topic is sustainability. Enjoy. The power of designers and their influence on sustainability. Let's listen to what the designers at the Compost Modern 2006 conference have to say on this topic in Adobe's Voices of Design series. Here is Michael Schwab, Schwab Design. Design does influence people, and whether it's subconsciously or, or obviously, design does mean a lot, and, and, and it leaves a lasting impression. Paul Sappho, Institute for the Future. Designers are thought leaders, and they're action leaders. Designers have got to get this right, and they've got to define it right, because if they get it wrong, all their wrong ideas are going to be embedded in everything everybody else uses. Mark Willard. IDO. Designers have been shaping culture for as long as there's been design. We have a huge opportunity, and I think before long it's going to be an obligation or a mandate to figure out how to solve these projects, these issues, these desires with sustainably relevant solutions. You have been listening to the Voices of Design series brought to you by Adobe Systems. The challenge of change comes as ramped up due to the advent of information age and the interconnectedness of global community. In a high-tech world, the ability to embrace change, adapt, and respond accordingly is key to personal and professional success. Talking Change with Ann Powers, airing every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific, explores the hows, whys, and what to do when faced with change. Embrace the new reality, adopt transition into your personal power portfolio, and tune into Talking Change with Ann Powers every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific time right here on the bottom line business talk voice america business 
Learn to thrive, not just survive in business and careers. Unleash your full potential and greatness with the Thrive Factor, unleashing your potential. With tactical coaches and success masters, hosts Dory Willer and Eva Gregory. Dory, Eva, and their masters of thriving, expert guests, inform, educate, elucidate, and inspire with leading-edge information. The Thrive Factor, unleashing your potential. With Dory Willer and Eva Gregory, broadcast each Thursday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, on the Voice America Business Channel, The Thrive factor success and inspiration at the click of a mouse the bottom line in business talk voice america business we're back with design matters with debbie millman if you have a question for debbie feel free to call us at 866-472-5790 once again here's the host of design matters debbie millman Welcome back. It is 3.49 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Melman, live from the Empire State Building in New York City. I am your host, Debbie Melman, and my guests today are Steve Sakura, Charlie Lazor, and Tom Wright. If you'd like to join our conversation, you can call us, 1-866-472-5790. And we do, once again, have another caller on the line, Sean from New York. Thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I have a, uh, a question for Steve Sakura. Okay. Um, I noticed that you did some work with um, the packaging for Michael Graves on his um, utensil products for Target. I actually worked with, with him a while back. Um, he was designing one of the um, skyscrapers for luxury rentals in Manhattan, uh, 425 Fifth Avenue. And he had a lot of impact in terms of driving what the design of the materials being developed for the promotional launch from print advertising to corporate identity to materials for that specific property. I wanted to know if he had a strong influence in terms of how you designed the packaging for these products. Oh, absolutely. This is um, it's a question that would take a very long time to answer, but <laughs> the bottom line is um, we were fortunate enough to be involved from the from the get-go when, when the uh, marketing department at Target determined that this was something that was likely to occur. Uh, we went to the very early uh, meetings when Graves and his design team were bringing products in in really a raw form and in, and in depth. And in, in some of those very first meetings, we started talking about what packaging should be. And uh, we were very fortunate also to have a visionary um, on, uh, on the marketing team, or excuse me, on the, on the merchandising team. And this guy's now gone on, his name's Ron Johnson, he's now gone on to Apple uh, where he runs the retail uh, store. And so the, uh, uh, Ron's vision sort of brought us all together in the room at the same time. So it's like, and this doesn't usually happen in situations like this. And so there was constant feedback between what the Graves team would bring in, what we could bring to it uh, based on our knowledge of Target, and what the Target marketing department could do. And so it was a constant uh, interface back and forth. And, uh, and the end result obviously could never have been uh, nearly as successful without everybody's input. Right. It's amazing, though, because what I, when I see the packaging that you designed, it actually aligns with some of the work that we did with Michael Graves in terms of the advertising campaign for the overall, for the, for the property. And it's amazing that he kind of takes a, do you, do you feel that he takes a simplistic uh, style approach to his work and how he wants that to be communicated and perceived by the uh, public? Yeah, I think that they, um, uh, if you talk to either Michael or, or any of the Senior architects—they really—they view their work as being um, basic geometry and, and, and being ultimately very simplistic, and uh, that was the drive on this on the packaging. In fact, the, 
the model we used was sort of a Tiffany box. Everyone kept talking about a Tiffany box, you know, as something that a gift that they got when they got married. And uh, you know, we we probably talked about that for two or three months before I went out and got a, a Tiffany box to see how absolutely inferior that box was to the thing that we produced. But it was held up to a very high standard because it's it's got sort of a, an iconic color to it and a very simple branding and totally giftable. Uh, obviously, a mass market store needs to do packaging for a mass market store needs to do a little more work than that. So, you know, we needed to add a few elements. Okay, and, and finally, uh, what uh, package design are you most proud of? That's really a really hard question. You know, I I would have to say that the, um, I'm very proud of the Graves packaging just because it, it's a lot more than that individual program. Uh, for one thing, it's a, it, as far as Target is concerned, that's uh, that program and that moment in time really sort of shifted the focus uh, for what they did as a, as a business entity. And ultimately, I think it was responsible for, for um, a sea change in terms of how they were perceived uh, by the design community and, and really the world at large. So I think in terms of impact, that, that packaging uh, stands above everything else. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you. Sure. Thank you for calling Design Matters, Sean. Steve, you just mentioned something about shifting the focus, and I think that that's one of the things that I believe that the flat pack house has done, not only in the world of prefabricated houses or what I think Charlie would also call manufactured architecture um, than, than anything else. And, I, and I, I'm wondering what, what you might think, what both of you might think, and time as well. What, what, is the, what is responsible for that sea change in the way that the prefabricated house is perceived in our culture now? Who wants to take that? Shall I appoint one of you? Sure, yeah. <laughs> Why don't Charlie, you go first and Steve and sure. Tom. <laughs> well, I, you know, I think clearly, um, uh, you know, within a certain uh, demographic perhaps, the dwell reader uh, is a great example. Prefabrication is a means to achieving a really wonderful modern house, uh, a managed and controlled process that's predictable, uh, which is not what modern architecture is about uh, when done um, the, the traditional way. Um, and uh, so, so I think within that group of people, um, not only are they on board, but um, they're they're eager to uh, start, um, but the, um, I, I think um, what's happening, in, at least in American culture, is that, um, I mean, perhaps you start with a toothbrush and then the running shoes and, um, and the product groups start uh, getting larger and more expensive. Um, you go to the car or the computer, let's say, and then to the car, mm-hmm. um, and we're thinking Apple and we're thinking, um, you know, Mini Cooper, um, and then we're thinking about the vacation, stay in a boutique hotel, Mm-hmm. Um, a Schrager type of hotel uh, done by a designer like Stark, and I think uh, spending a little time living in that space, people start to think, "God, I this is better, <laughs> this is <laughs> nicer, and I love this, and I want to live in this all the time." Yeah, people are and, stealing uh, more and more things from hotel rooms these days. I just read that. Absolutely, I think it's a, I think it's responsible for a lot of the shift, but um, but there needs to be a means of of designing and delivering the design that is different than the conventional architect, uh, client, commission-based structure. Mm-hmm. That structure is really, is, is when you look at it, it's couture. It is a special, handmade thing, 
specifically for a client, and it is very demanding. It's uh, expensive. It's uh, difficult to get made. Um, it takes a lot of time, and there are a lot of uh, trials and tribulations to uh, pass through in order to get get it done. Um, and uh, now none of those products that I just described, the car, the computer, the boutique hotel, requires such a such an onerous process, such a demanding process to go through in order to get the goods. And really what Flatpak is about is about, is about making it as easy as that, making it a consumer product in which uh, things are worked out, getting from point A to point B is chop, 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 all very clear and predictable um, and understandable from the consumer point of view. Right. Eliminate the, um, eliminate the unknowns and really um, put them through a process that... Um, tried and true. Well, um, I'm actually going to tell Tom and Steve that rather than add on to that answer, I have a very quick question because we are going to have to close the show. Um, and this is more of a yes-no kind of a question or an answer request. Um, Steve, I read that one of the reasons that you wanted to work with Nina Paper is that you wanted to get graphic designers to fall back in love again with paper. I really loved that quote. So both Tom and Steve, do you think that designers are back in love with paper? It's coming. We're working on that. <laughs> okay. I well. think the, the, the nice part is that it's all about materials. Charlie uses wonderful materials. Right. Paper has some wonderful material properties to it. And if you move away from just plain white, you can really make a difference in the way it communicates. And Charlie's little brochure that the design guys put together for them is a great way to show how something like that can be done. Well, thank you for your commitment to the world, the great world of design. Um, so we've come to the end of our broadcast today. I'd like to thank Steve and Charlie and Tom for joining me today. Very special thanks to our sponsors, Adobe and, of course, Nina Paper. I'd like to thank Ruben and Brian at Voice America for making the broadcast happen. Joining me next week is the creative director at Starbucks, Stanley Hainsworth. Thank you for listening, and remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Melman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters, right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business.